It's Friday, January 12th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And on the show today, wait, why am I saying on the show today first? Because I want to save you from listening to this feed if you could listen to the Pesca Plus feed for free, which you can now. One week trial for free. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. We have a second part of our wonderful interview with Donald McNeil on the wisdom of plagues here in this feed with the ads and all that. It's about a 16 minute interview. It's great. Were you to listen to this interview and say, ah, I wish I had more. I wish I had almost three times more. We have that for you at Pesca Plus, 43 minutes of this part of the Donald McNeil interview. You could go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and get a free trial for a week. Okay, that's the on the show today. I'll probably come back and reset that. But first, I got to talk about what they were doing the other day. U.S. missiles hitting Houthi targets in Yemen. You know, death is never good on the world stage, except maybe, okay, no, the death of the Houthis. We just like the Houthis to cut it out. Most of us, most of the normal people of the world, not people who are good with a chant. Remember a couple weeks ago, I played some socialists saying, Houthis, Houthis, you're the man. If you can't do it, Osama bin Laden once could. But it's not just that one chant. The let's go Houthi chant is almost everywhere that the Palestinians from the river to the sea chant also shows up. I'm going to talk to the chanters, the people who are so pro-peace and so against bloodshed, yet still like the Houthis firing rockets at ships, and I want to speak to them. Because perhaps along with your pro-Houthi sentiments, you also love the world itself and the environment. I'm going to give you an environmental rationale for destroying the Houthis. Well, you know the Houthis, by lobbing missiles at ships in the Red Sea, are redirecting ships. And when a ship has to go around the Cape rather than going through the Suez Canal, let's say a ship coming to New York, that will be 2,000 extra miles longer, well, as a percentage of the trip, longer to European ports. But let's just take the ships who have to go around the Cape of Good Hope versus Suez Canal. So far, actually, fewer ships than they thought have redirected. Most oil tankers haven't. But they do document 2,000 ships, cargo ships, container ships, have gone the long way around. And those extra 2,000 miles, that's 2,000 times 2,000, that's 4 million miles of extra travel, a weight, and you just put that in kilometers, 6.4 million kilometers Okay, but how much carbon does that displace? I found it. A cargo ship produces 16.14 grams of CO2 per metric ton. Okay, but how many metric tons is one of these ships? Well, a typical container ship, there's no such thing, but you know, one of the big ones, but not an overly big one, its capacity is expected to exceed 200 20,000 tons. I've done all the math. I literally used scientific notation and times 10 to the sixth and times 10 to the fourth and then converted into from grams to tons. And are you ready? It's crazy. We are talking about just by inspiring those ships, if they're not going to get hit by the Houthis to go the short way around, we're talking about one and a half million tons 
of CO2 emissions. So there you know what the savings is. No, because no one knows what one and a half million tons are. I found some very helpful infographics. It's about 300,000 passenger vehicles taken off the road for a year. So by striking at the Houthis, who are not nice guys, even if they inspire good rhymes, by striking at the Houthis, it's like the entire state of West Virginia stopped driving for a year. Isn't that good? Doesn't that help your lungs? Doesn't that make you feel a little better than you normally would about the military-industrial complex? In this case, it's the military-industrial-eco-friendly complex. On the show today, I think I may have mentioned this. Donald McNeil is here. He will be discussing his book, The Wisdom of Plagues. He began covering pandemics in the 80s. Actually, his repertorial career extends to the 70s. And The Wisdom of Plagues is all the lessons he has learned from covering all ailments, all manner of ailments and diseases with a special emphasis on COVID. And if you're a PESCA Plus member, you'll get an additional 30 minutes to the interview. Donald McNeil Jr. up next. Once more by Donald G. McNeil Jr., author of The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from Over 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. And let us speak of politics, and let's take Florida and California, two states where governors had vastly different responses to COVID. But if you look at the death tolls, the age-adjusted death tolls, they're not that dissimilar. California did a bit better. Their death toll was almost exactly 100 people dead per 100,000, and Florida's was 111. Okay, so what about that? What do you make of that, Mr. McNeil? Well, they were higher in Florida, if I remember correctly. I I keep hearing different statistics about the the death tolls. If I remember, they were higher in Florida than they were in California. But then you have to norm for the fact that Florida has an older population. And what you do, it wasn't- And you norm for the fact that the older population had more reason to be scared and maybe responded differently. I mean, I know that there were, there was enormous demand for monoclonal antibodies in Florida. In fact, the Biden administration had to step in because Florida and Texas, having rejected the vaccine and then having a lot of their citizens fall sick, began using up you know, vast amounts of the supply of the of the monoclonal antibodies. And those luckily never became part of the culture war. It was bizarre because, yeah. I mean, anybody who said the vaccine isn't tested, the monoclonal antibodies had much less testing. They, they, you know, they, they Don't were, start anything yeah. on the show, Donald. Yeah. No, but I I was all, I was hoping for monoclonal. When, when Trump fell sick, I heard about that at one o'clock in the morning. I woke up, got out of bed, and immediately wrote to Maggie Haberman saying, ask and see if he got the monoclonal antibodies. They were not approved at the time, but I said, look, these those antibodies against Ebola worked miraculously well because I'd written about that a few years before. And I said, if, if they work as well against COVID as they did against Ebola, it's obviously it's a different antibody because it's a different virus. But that but this technology, you know, then if I were the White House physician, I would move heaven and earth to make sure the president got them. And sure enough, he got them. And it was like, boom, he was better almost instantly. And that's the story I've heard is that people are feeling really lousy and the needle goes into their arm and they're feeling better within half an hour. It's bizarre how effective they are. Now, they become useless faster than vaccines do because they are, it's really one antibody or maybe a cocktail of two antibodies. It is very specific or one particular point on the spike protein or whatever it is they've been aimed against. So they don't work as well as they used to and now we do Paxlovid. But um, just my point is that, that 
you know, the anyway, that's right. Your question was about Florida versus. Uh, no, no, it's a good point. I, my question was about that, how that didn't become part of the culture war, luckily and bizarrely, as you're saying. Yeah. So there was there was a bigger demand for that. And I think people did see, you know, I think people did change their behavior. I I, I can't account for, why, why, you know, why things work. But um, and I think, you know, closing schools really did not make much difference in the course of the pandemic. I don't think closing schools was a policy that made a lot of sense. I think it was a policy that was driven largely by the teachers' unions. Yes. It wasn't the kids who were at risk. It was the teachers and the staff members and everybody everybody else who was older and possibly obese or diabetic or things. And, and so in, in states where you had strong unions, you had much more of a push for doing things like closing down, closing down the schools, which Keep- extended the whole pandemic lockdown phenomenon for everybody. Yes. And I think to this day, uh, the average citizen's impression of were the lockdowns necessary and weren't they, weren't they, is extremely colored by the school lockdown issue because so many parents uh, had to go through it and they had to deal with their kids. And it was even much more important than a bar being closed or a gym being closed. And I do think, I agree with you, they mostly got it wrong. And that's why people look back and the question, did lockdowns work? They default to thinking about the schools and they rightly say that was excessive. Yeah, I think that's true. Also, you know, you could probably argue that the Florida has a bit more of an outdoor, uh, you know, less population density than California. You know, although the difference, the climate difference between Northern California and Southern, Southern California. I mean, that yes, you'd you'd get you'd be more likely to have a somewhat higher death rate in places where there is cold winters and people have to go inside. You know, in, in, inside restaurants that huddle together uh, in in uh, in winter time than you would in, in someplace like Florida. The Clinton Foundation and Bush's PEPFAR um, initiatives. These are those two entities. They're in your book. I'm going to take it, but you tell me. Much more heroic than villainous, in your opinion. Oh yeah, I, I mean, you have to understand. I mean, Clinton and Gore, when they were in office threatened South Africa with trade sanctions if they went ahead and passed a bill that would have lowered the prices of drugs in South Africa and a lot of generic thing. But after he left office, Clinton had a 180 degree turnaround and so did Gore. And they ended up, he ended up, Bill Clinton creating a foundation that sort of made the market for bringing a country that needed drugs but had no money, the donors who had money but didn't really know where to buy drugs and who to get them to, and the generics makers in India who were capable of making drugs but needed to be paid for that and needed to have somebody find them their customers because they didn't have any relations with African countries, under Ira Magazine or the Clinton Foundation would get these three groups together at the table and say, you got the patients, you got the money, you got the drugs, how about we make a deal and get it done? And that helped save many, many lives because there, you know, there's a lot of different antiretrovirals, there's a lot of drugs you you need to treat people for um, opportunistic infections with AIDS. So there were many, many deals were made. PEPFAR was the Bush administration's, it's the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. And the Bush administration, and this is this is the thing that Tony Fauci said with, for him was the proudest moment of his career as he helped organize PEPFAR. Once the prices of the drugs had dropped because the Indian companies had stepped in and were making drugs that previously cost $15,000 for a year's course down for less than $350 for a year's course, once the prices dropped, then the Bush administration created a program that would get together and fund the purchasing of drugs for countries in Africa and, and Asia. Vietnam was one of the original countries. Um, and 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 then start programs in those countries that would um, you know, test people and prescribe them the right drugs and then give them the follow-up care. And, you know, if you count that plus the president's malaria initiative, plus the Global Fund to Fight uh, HIV uh, 
it's a global fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. If you can't hold those together, they've saved at least 25 million lives and maybe more than that, you know, since, since that time in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, why was the Chinese vaccine so much less effective? And why was the Russian vaccine, I think, Sputnik less effective? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, they were not made with mRNA technology. I don't know the details of the technology they were made with. I know that the, the you know, that both of them were released without a lot of data proving that they were effective, which was a psychological mistake. Um, once the two Chinese vaccines, um, which I think were made by attenuating the virus, but I, I, if I before I answer that question, I'd rather go back and look it up. Um, when they were released and they were used widely in Chile and they were used widely in Qatar and they were used, and studies were done there and it turned out they were only about 60% effective, which is, you know, better than nothing, but you really want a vaccine that's, when you've got a vaccine that's 95% effective from the United States, everybody's going to clamor for that one. Um, the Russian vaccine, uh, if you had, I think if you had two doses, it was fairly effective, but because he released, he called it Sputnik in order to make it clear that he was, you know, competing with the West. And this is this is how we're going to beat you to the punch because they yeah. released it before any Western vaccines were out. Um, you know, kind of like Sputnik, it was it was up in the air first. It was only this little blob with antennas on it that went beep 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 as it went around the Earth, and of course threw us into a panic and created the effort that got us to put a man on the moon. But you know, which ended up having a good, but in and of itself, it wasn't very impressive. Impressive and. You know, the Sputnik vaccine, because it was released early, uh, even even in Russia, nobody would trust it. And so there was very little uptake in Russia. And so Russia had a very, you know, had a bad time with the pandemic too. So I haven't gone back and read your coverage, but I distinctly remember before the vaccines, the U.S. vaccines were invented, there was factual reporting that this would break the record by many times how quickly a vaccine could be developed. And in fact, I definitely I definitely recall that there was the conception that, I don't know, they're saying we could have a vaccine by whatever the date. That seems really quite unrealistic. Now, I don't know if political people were saying that or scientific people were saying that, but were you shocked by how quickly they developed this vaccine? Yes. And it was science people, and I was quoting science people. I was one of the people saying early on, look, the record for creating a new vaccine is four years with the mumps vaccine. That was in the early 60s. And in those days, you tested. it was tested by Maurice Hilleman. He made it out of a strain from his own daughter's throat. That's why it's called the Geraldine strain of vaccine. Um, and he tested it by having parents uh, sign up through their churches and the the, um, what do you call it, permission forms that they signed was literally one sentence. I give permission for my son to have to have an experimental vaccine. That was it. So even though it was an incredibly loosey-goosey system compared to what we now um, put people through uh, today in, in uh, you know, carefully balancing the study populations and making sure that people sign, you know, very long legal documents and everything else before they engage in this, even though they had a sort of loosey-goosey system, it took four years to create, to get the mumps vaccine approved. So I figured maybe another, not me, but other scientists said maybe they can cut that in half. Nobody was expecting a vaccine in less than two years. And yet there we were with a vaccine in about 11 months before yeah. it was actually rolled out. That miracle shows us the greatness of science, of the procurement system. I interviewed the general who coordinated all this. I don't know, some credit to Trump for warp speed. Absolutely. What does that show? I, look, Operation Warp Speed, despite its goofy name, was one of the real triumphs of the Trump administration. I mean, that, and it's one where he basically 
you know, they approved $11 billion. They put two people in charge of it, one of whom was an army general in charge of logistics and the other of whom was the former head of vaccines for GlaxoSmithKline, who was really good at making vaccines. And they basically got out of their way and let them do their job. And they did an amazing job. You remember that there were actually, at least from the beginning, there were seven different candidates. We ultimately ended up approving only three of them, but that was enough to beat the virus, to have enough vaccine to beat the virus. And the other thing they did was they made millions and millions of doses on spec. That is, here's a vaccine. We think it's going to work. We've only begun to test it. It seems to work well in monkeys. And in the first 20 volunteers we've tested it in, we can see they have antibodies in their blood. Let's build the factory. Let's make the vaccine. And while we're testing, we're going to be producing it. If the tests work out, then we can roll the vaccine out immediately. That's a that's a sea change from the way vaccines were made before, where you did all this testing and you kept refining the vaccine. And then you said, okay, now that we know it works, let's build the factory. And then once we build the factory, then you have to build the distribution network. You have to do the fill and finish steps. And da, 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 da. No, they had the vaccines ready to roll the minute they were approved. And then they had to say, okay, who gets them first? Healthcare workers, they're on the front lines, you know, EMTs, firemen, anybody else like that. And after that, old people starting with, you know, people over 80, then people over 70, then people over 60. And then, yeah, I mean, there's a rational way to do it. You start with people on the front lines and you end with, you know, the last ones to get anything are pregnant women. Right. Um, for obvious reasons, you, you know, you you want to do the least harm with any yeah. new vaccine. Aaron Rodgers um, should be somewhere maybe below that. <laughs> <laughs> Jets quarterbacks. But what is, here's what I'm trying to figure out or think about. I always think about this politically, sociologically. We have the ability to do this. We have the ability to create scientific and logistic miracles. Is that that ability resides in the well-resourced, the elites, the fact that there are, you know, for everyone working alongside that process, they had everything they needed? And where we fall short, it seems like that's much harder because the average person can't quite conceptualize how that happened. What we can conceptualize is, well, just go to CVS and get the shot that they're giving you. And that's where it all falls apart. And so I guess my question, and this is, this doesn't call upon your 60 countries you visited as an epidemiologist, but you must have thought about it. Why is that? Why is the choke point or the failure point something so easy, such as the psychology of people, whereas we have these, like I said, scientific miracles that seem out of the realm of human possibility? Because that's been true in every single pandemic. I mean, that psychology has as much to do with spreading the disease as the actual spike protein of the virus does or whatever the other transmission does. I mean, it, whether or not people accept self-protective measures, whether or not they accept a vaccine, whether or not they accept a drug has a lot to do with how you present it to them and whether or not they decide to believe. I, 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 you know, I mean, in the Middle Ages, um, you know, during the Black Death, many, many people died of the Black Death, but many other people were murdered because you know they you know the Jews were blamed for poisoning the wells or another ethnic group would be blamed for bringing this disease to them psychology plays a huge um you know role in how many people die in really in any crisis mm -hmm. you know i mean this this is true of wars too some of it is you know you just don't believe the enemy is going to do anything you i mean we saw this in gaza nobody believed uh, you know that the uh, hamas was capable of it. right no one thought the Russians would roll into Ukraine. Right. right. Yes. So psychology, anticipation, bad predictions, you know, the madness of crowds plays a big role in, in every pandemic. And, and 
I mean, unfortunately, this continues even though science is getting better and better and better at producing vaccines. I mean, we, we still have not produced an HIV vaccine, and that's because of the virus and how fast it mutates, not because the technology hasn't been able to catch up. Every single technology- But we've made it a manageable condition. We've made it a manageable condition if you take the drugs that prevent it every day, yes. or if you have a shot that implants those drugs in your arm every day, you know, that's- manageable, but it's no fun to have a fatal disease and a disease that, you know, like it or not, you know, takes hammers and tongs to your immune system. Right. Um, you know, and, and those drugs are tough. Those are, those are, they're not benign drugs to, to be taken. It's not fun to be on those drugs for your entire life. So yeah, it'd be great if we had a vaccine against HIV. Public health officials are tasked with not just the health and the science, but the psychology of people. Can we get better at that? Can we make the sort of leaps in just uh, the in, in societal conception that we have made leaps with mRNA and the spikes of a protein and things that can only be seen through a microscope? Is that even possible? Well, I kind of despair of that, unfortunately, because I think the pandemic, I was hoping in the beginning, the pandemic would sort of bring us all together the way you know, the, the 1918 flu and the First World War and uh, sort of sort of pulled the country together a little bit. And certainly World War II pulled the country together. And, you know, we had a, a time of relative peace and prosperity in the 1950s. Now, you could say it was all groupthink and everybody, you know, performed as if they were madmen. But I was I was hoping because we had a common enemy that we would they would fight the virus that we would come together. But instead, we became much more polarized, much more at each other's throats. It, it became sort of like a giant national bar fight. And I worry that if we have another epidemic, you know, you can surge vaccines, you can surge drugs, but you can't surge trust. And a lot of it will have to do with who our leaders are at the time. If they are trustworthy, if in general we believe that leader, then we will probably respond intelligently. But I worry that we're so polarized that neither side trusts the other leader of the other side. And so I'm kind of despairing, unfortunately. Donald McNeil is the Pulitzer Prize winning veteran of the New York Times. And his latest book is The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And now the spiel. Yesterday, South Africa made its claims in the International Court of Justice that Israel was engaged in genocidal acts. As I mentioned, legal scholars think it will be extremely hard to prove this claim because intent is part, a key part of the definition of genocide. But Israel is very worried about even a provisional ruling by the court, which would shame the Israelis who really do say and really do think that they are the most moral military in the world. Your scoffing may vary when you hear that statement, but Israel's self-perception is that they, as a country founded in the wake of genocide by a people who literally came to define the word genocide, their self-perception is they'd never commit genocide. First, rebutting the South African assertions was Tal Becker, the legal advisor of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The applicant, by its request, seeks to thwart Israel's inherent right to defend itself, to let Hamas not just get away with its murder, literally, but render Israel defenseless as Hamas continues to commit it. Yesterday, counsel for the applicant made the astonishing claim that Israel was denied this right, and as a matter of fact should not be able to protect itself 
from Hamas's attacks. There's one of the major cruxes of the dispute between Israel and South Africa. There is an implied, though sometimes it's a stated assertion, Literally, there is a strain of argument that says a country cannot defend itself if it is struck from a territory it occupies. It's not the dominant strain. It's not international law. But people say this. Prominent people, scholarly people, that Israel does not have the right to strike out against Hamas because Hamas was operating from an occupied territory. But then I also want to draw your ears to that part about Becker talking about letting Hamas get away with it. That's a variation of a common complaint I hear. Shouldn't Israel be the more moral party? I mean, if they call themselves the most moral military in the world, shouldn't Israel realize that Hamas tactics don't justify their tactics? I think it would have been smart for Becker and others who testified to reframe things a little bit. That it's not about Hamas getting away with it or using Hamas tactics of hiding among the citizenry, Israel using that as an excuse. It's not an excuse for Israel. It's actually a horrible, horrible choice thrust upon Israel, and Hamas knows this. Saying it's an excuse to kill civilians is like saying gangrene is an excuse to cut off one's arm. Becker was generally good. My comments are critiques, so they will sound overly negative, but I do think he could have made his arguments with a little bit of a different pitch. Take this one. The key component of genocide, the intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, is totally lacking. What Israel seeks by operating in Gaza is not to destroy a people, but to protect the people, its people. And there, he could have said, and the Palestinian people, who have been subjugated, immiserated, and purposefully, knowingly, tactically endangered by Hamas. Hamas aims to manipulate this very body into holding these hearings, and it worked. Becker went on to say this specifically about the crime alleged genocide. The temptation to reach for the most outrageous term, to vilify and demonize, has become for many irresistible. But if there is a place where words should still matter, where truth should still matter, it is surely a court of law. Hear, hear, and ultimately, Israel will win this case, but the world does hate Israel, and to be fair, members of Israeli society gave the prosecution, as it were, a lot of fodder with talk of flattening Gaza and literal calls for revenge against Gaza, not just Hamas. Israeli lawyers did address these remarks and talked about them as the result of anguish and noted that they were often directly rebutted by people actually in charge. Israeli lawyers also cited many, many instances of top leaders explicitly saying that the battle is against Hamas, not all Gazans. And of course, you have to say this. I doubt it will be the argument that wins the day. I mean, it's quite clear that a clever, careful entity actually intent on genocide might actually lie about their intentions to achieve their purpose. That doesn't mean that the most unhinged calls for vengeance, though, need to be credited. Oh, you can't trust anything the Israelis say when they talk about not killing civilians. You can't, that's not how it works either. It just means you can't really neutralize words with other words. 
Though, I'd like to cite the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention, which tweeted, Israel contends that the intention to destroy a people in whole or in part is totally lacking. Mr. Becker's words, however, ring hollow in light of the overwhelming evidence that genocidal rhetoric from senior Israeli officials, journalists, and Israeli military and society. I ask you, Maybe you are an American or Canadian or Australian, countries all accused of genocide. If the rhetoric you hear on OAN or Sky News or the words of the most extreme citizens who, by the way, sometimes gain elected office, should they be counted against you in international proceedings and your countries actually committing the crime of genocide and actually having the intent to do so? The people who actually make the rules and set about the strategy? I mean, if those words do correlate to actions, then they should. But a large part of Israel's presentation addressed this. They talked about how Israel's actions don't belie a genocidal intent. Take one Israel policy to lessen the death toll, which wasn't just dismissed by the South African application as unimportant, but it was actually cited as another example of genocide. Here, Galit Ragawan, acting director of the International Justice Division of Israel's Justice Ministry, made that exact case. This clip you're about to hear is a minute and a half long. To date, the IDF has dropped millions of leaflets over areas of expected attacks with instructions to evacuate and how to do so, broadcast countless messages over radio and through social media, warning civilians to distance themselves from Hamas operations, and made over 70,000 individual phone calls, including to occupants of the targets warning them of impending attacks. This requires time. It requires resources and intelligence. And the IDF invests all of these to save civilian lives. Here you can see the IDF's Arabic Twitter account providing information for civilians to evacuate specific areas, including the location of shelters nearby. Yet the applicant astonishingly claims that these efforts are in themselves genocidal. In other words, a measure intended to mitigate harm to the civilian population, sometimes exceeding the requirements of international humanitarian law, is proof, according to the applicant, of Israel's intent to commit genocide, when in fact, It proves the exact opposite. I don't know how far the argument will go. The crime of genocide has become this odd specter in international law. It's almost never proved. The bar for alleging it, however, has gotten lower and lower and lower in my lifetime. The tweet from the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention demonstrates that. Some radio commentators called for genocide, therefore your society committed genocide. That center, the Lemkin Institute, if you go on their web pages and listen to their public pronouncements, they see genocide in a lot of places. They've dubbed American police shooting black people genocidal. They've dubbed the gender critical movement with their rejection of transgender identities as genocidal. And yeah, I know a lot of people believe that. But we're talking about the Lemkin Institute. Lemkin was Raphael Lemkin, the Polish Jew who in 1944 invented the term and concept genocide. English scholar and author Felipe Sands wrote a book about him, and he's come to believe that the term and concept has become something it never was intended to be. Over time, 
what has happened is genocide has come to be seen as the crime of crimes. And so a hierarchy has been created. Victims want the crime to which they have been subjected to be the worst. That's understandable. Prosecutors at various international criminal tribunals that have been created since Nuremberg say to me, the victims always wanted to be genocide. I think a lot of the impetus to label Israel's actions in Gaza genocide stem from that inclination. It is a horror. What's going on there is a true horror. And so what's the worst horror? Well, it's the crime of genocide. Israel may very well have committed war crimes. I'm totally open to that idea. I do wonder what Lemkin would think. He debated these issues with his friend Hirsch Lauterpacht, who gave the world its current concept of crimes against humanity. These two, Lauterpacht and Lemkin, they were boyhood friends in Lviv, Ukraine, site of another case before the International Court of Justice. And Lemkin and Lauterpacht would go on to define our current concepts of international justice. Lauterpack went on to find Haven in the United Kingdom. Lemkin moved to America after the war. And each were firm adherents to the political movement known as Zionism. They wrote in favor of it. They recognized the Jewish state as a bulwark against genocide. And they surely recognized the right of that state to provide for their people's defense. None of that's especially meaningful to a court convening 63 years after each died. But I do wonder if they had been alive today for which side they testified. And no matter which side, what would be the costs to the moral clarity their names have become synonymous with? And that's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. That's Corey Wara, gist producer, and Joel Patterson, gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>